Hello again, this is Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm Jason Concepcion. Please respect and enjoy the piece. And this is your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus and hundreds of millions of other world spaces, a big place. We aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on the show. Every week I'm recapping and breaking apart every episode of season two with Foundation showrunner and executive producer David Escoyer. Hi again, David. Thanks for having me. Can I say that? Every week. I am thrilled to be here. (laughs) Uh, This week, we are unpacking episode six, titled Why the Gods Made Wine. And we are delighted to be joined by production designer Rory Shane. Welcome, Rory. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Let's start with the quick recap. This story was written by you, David, with a script written by Jane Espenson and directed by Alex Graves. Uh, This is a huge flashback episode where we spend a lot of time in Harry's past. We get to meet his charming, dashing, and brilliant partner, Yana. Don't worry, Dr. Selden. I think your theory is brilliant. You just need help making it practicable. We get to watch them fall in love and develop the Prime Radiant. We see them come into conflict with the Empire. Bullshit! It's an amazing opportunity, and it's you an know it! It's an opportunity for you to fuck the fuck up! And when Harry refuses to turn over the Prime Radiant, Yana and Harry's unborn daughter are killed. Harry then takes revenge on the university official responsible for this by having her trampled by moonstrikes. Then he decides that he's going to accept the offer to teach at Trantor, which is where we meet him in season one. Thank you. This will do nicely. Meanwhile, on Ignis, we learn more about Tellum and the Mentalics. Tellum has, much like Charles Xavier, been collecting the Mentalics from all over the galaxy. They've been kind of targeted on their home worlds, oppressed, certainly in her telling of it. We're treated as gods among men or wolves among sheep. And here she has created a kind of a sanctuary. Now, she says she wants Gale to lead the Mentalics, but Harry cannot be involved. No Harry at all. You can even call them the second foundation if you don't come up with something catchier. Also, it's Salvor's birthday. It's only my birthday if you're counting Terminus solar cycles. And elsewhere across space, Hober knocks on a hive of spacers. On Trantor, Day finally makes his engagement official and public, telling everyone that he's ending the genetic dynasty. And then Sarath takes the opportunity to uh, really show that she is not the simple pushover that Day thinks. We serve you. We love you. We belong to you. Uh, This is very popular with everyone who's listening to it. Uh, Certainly not as popular with Day and Demarzel. Polly and Constant arrive on Trantor. Polly goes nuts on the Prophet's black card before finally admitting to Constant that he needs to sober up. Uh, Unfortunately, before he can really go through with this, they are picked up by the Empire's customs agents who take the Foundation folks into custody. Your visit to Tranta has been extended indefinitely. And then finally on Ignis, Salvor's birthday party is interrupted by Harry flying away in the Beggar's Lament. Only, that didn't happen. That's not Harry. Tellum is actually keeping Harry prisoner, tied up up to his neck in steadily rising water. She made it look as if Harry fled, when really what she's doing is executing him. This isn't murder. I would never kill one of my own. Wow. Wow. That When I hear all that, I'm like, how the hell did we... <laughs> <laughs> shoot and pack all that into, I don't know, 50 minutes or, or less. That's a lot. I would say that was probably the single most challenging episode that 
we've filmed thus far in terms of Mother Nature, Mother Nature, and things going wrong. Rory, I think a lot of our listeners might not understand how important the role of a production designer is. Could you explain what it is that you do? I would just say the environment and everything that the actor is touching from the props to the tables to the the room they're in or to the location they're in, it all sort of like filters through me from location scouting to designing spaceships to, you know, building these worlds. Yeah, it, there's nothing that you see on camera that in some way Rory, as he said, it hasn't been filtered through his brain and sort of how does this feel foundation? How does this mm. tool feel foundation? I mean, down to Rory and his team designed the font mm -hmm. for the title sequence. Wow. And I don't they many, many, many iterations of those the fonts before. Yeah, numbers like and fonts for other planets as well. And then just for an example, like just say like episode six is we sort of really dive into Helicon. Yeah. And where I started to develop that world was Harry's office. So we see Harry's mm. office in the first season. And it's this sort of heavy, brutalist sort of concrete, but it's a certain type of concrete. And funny enough, I met the architect of that space, Fernando Menes, who's a Spanish architect. Yeah. And then from there, I'm like, okay, we need to build out, we need to build a helicon, we need a school, we need sort of like a down, like an urban, urban area, we need this sort of country uh, landscape. And Fernando, it's funny, he has built a lot of, buildings in the Canaries. And we ended up going to almost, I think, all of his buildings. Like the university is the city hall in, in Tenerife. And also Harry's house is uh, this other large complex he has in the south. And then we went up to Mount Tide, uh, which is the highest mountain in Spain, and shot Harry's country farmstead. But then you did the same thing for Suena with the other architect and Lanzarote. Yeah, so Suena was was amazing. I just found Lanzarote and it's just, it's, it is like a space island, incredible vineyards. And then it has this sort of sixties architecture from uh, Cesar Manrique. Yeah, yeah. It was this like super cool, like the parties that were going on in his place in the in the seventies, sixties <laughs> and seventies in Lanzarote must've been just crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy place. He's like the, um, the Hugh Hefner of yeah. Of, of Lanzarote, for sure. But it's interesting because then a lot of the Empire stuff was informed by Scarpa. So you, you yeah. kind of group worlds, you tend to do it around certain architects. Yeah, just to sort of stay in that vernacular of of whatever, you know, if we're with Empire, if we're with Suena, if we're with Ignis, just try to keep the style consistent. How many people would you say are in the art department? Oh, so I have... I'll have a group of drafts people and concept artists and graphic designers. So that's, you know, maybe 30 or 40. Mm -hmm. And then I have props department. And that's not even including the people that have to build it. Yeah. And then all the construction, wow. the construction team is, you know, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds. Of, of people hands-on uh, hammering nails and painting the sets. So yeah, like maybe 250 people or something like that. Oh gosh. But one of the joys is you'll be sitting there and there'll be all these incredible details that Rory and his team have put into the various sets. And sometimes I'll lament, like we'll have shot the bulk of a scene and I'll see like a detail that I'm like, fuck, you know, <laughs> I wish I would have shot that. Like I just, I just looked around <laughs> that corner. I saw that really cool statue that I didn't realize was there or that really cool inlaid design. And it just gives it all that texture. And like, it's, there's just mm. all this stuff that we missed, but you could spend a million dollars on a set. Easy. Yeah. Easy. Wow. But if we're going to go back there multiple times, I need to give you enough right. different angles so it's not like just like the same old, right. okay, here's, you know, day in the bed. Yeah. 
it'll be fun too because Rory will do of each set. You can do these kind of VR flythroughs and oh, that's cool. Check out like different angles and oh, what about this? Or what about that? And that's been really fun too. Yeah, that's sort of a new tech that you know I would say just happened just before starting the show. Is is before we even build anything, we can go into it in VR and. And it's great with the cinematographer. I can go in and and we can okay. Let's put a light there. Let's put a light there. Okay, let, you know, okay, dim that down. So you can actually light the set. Yeah. Oh, in, wow. VR. in VR, which is great. It's cool. Rory, do you have a favorite set, a favorite world, a favorite location that you've worked on? Well, I'll go way back. Like I got to say, one of my favorite ships is the Raven. Yeah. Back from oh, yeah. season one, that was a cool ship. This sort of like ghost ship, all black ghost ship. But but the Beggars is pretty amazing. Beggars is cool. The ships are the ships are a lot of fun. But there's a lot of beggars. Like you built, there's two stories. And I built it underwater as well. Yeah. It was, it's been everywhere, that thing. Well, let's talk about this episode. Um, I really felt like the theme of this episode was, you know, just the past is prologue. We get to find out that the Prime Radiant is essentially Terry's child with his partner, Yana, like could not have been created without her input, we we discover. And that feels like a, a, a huge window into his persona. Absolutely. He's got a, a line in episode three where he mentions him and Yana having a child and, and they said the only child that lived. But in a way, the Prime Radiant is the child that didn't live. And then there's the whole question about this Calais character who claims she might be the Prime Radiant having gained self-awareness. So is that character sort of a child of mm. Harry's as well? Um, but this episode is also really interesting because he gets into the, the whole idea of the Prime Radiant being in a state of superposition so that uh, it's, it's, it's a quantum device, so it can be in two places at once. And Salvor sort of pieces through this idea that if on Ignis, they have the Prime Radiant, and then on Terminus, other Selden has the Prime Radiant, right. are they linked in some way? And then she's like, wait, can you spy on the other Selden? And he kind of has a smile and, you know, it's, this is once again, Harry withholding information and there's more than meets the eye. Yeah. Other Selden has what appears to be a duplicate radiant. Appears to be. But in truth, there's only one and we both have it. It's quantum nature places it outside of space time. It's the same object in two places. So... To look into it is to look into his hand. For the lay physicists among us, could you explain superposition to the best oh, of your ability? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so there's classical physics. Yes. I guess what we call Newtonian physics, all the sort of basics that we learn about. And then there's quantum physics or quantum mechanics. And this is when you, you go down beyond the atomic scale. Atoms are predictable in their behavior, but subatomic particles, when things get really small, they get really strange and you can't predict them anymore. So the classical laws of physics break down. What that means is that things can exist in more than one state at the same time. So Schrodinger's cat can be both alive and dead. They can exist in more than one state. If the prime radiant is in a state of superposition, then it's never in one place with absolute certainty. It could hypothetically be 
anywhere in the universe. It's just that the two major places that it exists seem to be one in the vault and one in right. Ignis. I don't did I butcher that? Did that sort of no, make sense? I think that was that was that was very necessary and I think it was I think people are gonna get a lot of value of it. I have one follow-up. Okay. So the famous Schrodinger's cat experiment posits that the cat exists in a superposition of both being dead and alive yes. until you open the box to look to see, you know, what state the cat is in. So when people look at the prime radiant is that the thing that makes it be the place that it is? Yes. The state of observing something changes what's being observed. It's called the observer effect. So yes, it's true. But to go back to Schrodinger's cat, and I know there's a whole swath of listeners that just switched over to <laughs> a, another podcast right now. But to go back to Schrodinger's cat, you said like the Schro Schrodinger's cat can be both alive and dead at the same time, right? Yeah. So what character in our show does that also apply to? <laughs> I see. I, I, perfect. I see where we're going with this. Um, Rory, does, how much does... How much did that inform <laughs> your production design? <laughs> um, Rory, t uh, tell us about the creation of the Prime Radiant prop. How many of them are out there? Well, one of them's on my desk at home. Yeah, it went through a lot of, you know, what's the math going to look like? We had the vault design. And everything had to sort of relate to each other in a way. I also remember there were a lot of different prototypes for shapes, different shapes of the prime radiant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say with something like that, we really sort of, we cast the net out. Like it was a, definitely a, a big group effort to get that prop to its final. And a complicated prop to build. Absolutely, yeah. But I want I haven't got mine yet. I'm waiting, well, I'm waiting for mine. you're obviously in charge of them, <laughs> so you can make one. <laughs> That's your own and, and damn it's, fault. And it's funny, it's the, the actual manufacturing of these props. It's just getting, the ones this year are amazing. It's 3D printing just gets better and better and better and better. Yeah. They're cheaper and better. Yeah. But I mean, I would say right now, like I have a Prime Radiant and then we had one made for Robin Asimov, uh, oh, Isaac awesome. Asimov's daughter. So, so she's got one. So there's like five of them floating around in the world. I have a lot of like ships and hover cars on my desk, like little miniatures that I keep on collecting. Lots of cool stuff. Let's talk about Ignis and the, the kind of texture and feel and culture of this world. Uh, it really feels as if it's devoid of tech. It also looks, it's so wonderfully lush. Why come to this place for the Mentalics? And then how did you set about building the look and feel of this place, Rory? Well, I'd say Ignis, it was sort of like a summer home for the Empire. Mm -hmm. So there's these ruins that were left behind. You know, that was sort of our original sort of thought. And David had, you know, sent me a, a picture of Angkor Wat. So this is sort of like the feeling of this sort of this ancient ruin that had been sort of left and overgrown. Yeah. Um, and I had like this basis of architecture that, you know, that the palaces sort of comes from. So that was where I got into some of the structures that we built and this main set, which is called the, uh, the Summer Palace. And then from there we needed, I always want this sort of, the world to sort of expand out. We needed more locations and places to sort of roam and walk. And one amazing thing that we found here in the Czech Republic are these uh, incredible stone rock formations. That mm. are unlike anything like, I mean, I've these, ever seen anywhere like in the world. These sort of fingered rocks where you can walk through and it sort of almost becomes a palace in itself. It's great sort of like almost like little streets or passageways. And then they open up into these sort of plazas where we created this village space. And the other thing, we also needed an ocean, and we're in the Czech Republic. <laughs> um, so the ocean part of Ignis ended up in Lanzarote in the Canary yeah. Islands. Yeah. Which, you know, from there, you know, there's a lot of beaches in the Canaries. 
but I needed to tie the colors in with the rocks that are in the Czech Republic. And then, and then from there, I started building the sets, designing the sets, and, and we sort of matched the colors. So it all was a cohesive environment. So there's all this black sand in the Canaries, Lanzarote, because it's volcanic, but there's not a bunch of black sand in the Czech Republic. So like in some of these other locations, Rory and his team had to like truck in a bunch of black sand and like spread it all around like these sandstone formations. It's it's a tricky show because we love locations. We love to sort of like open up the worlds by going out to these amazing locations. But it, some of my worlds like Ignis end up in maybe possibly three countries. Wow. When we run into Harry in this episode, he is on the shoreline, you know, thinking about his past and we get these wonderful flashbacks to his life as a grad student. How much of this is just Harry now in a new body thinking about his life and how much of this is the mentalics digging around? Well, it's a little of both, right? So part of it is the fact that he has a new body is making him reminisce. Yeah. But Talim's sort of insidious ability is kind of to reach into your head and see who you love or what you feel guilty about. And then she's like, oh, that's what I'm going to latch on to and I'm going to use that. And so this flashback is both Harry as he's dying, sort of reliving his life and how he got here, but it is also Talim just kind of mentally destroying him. This is a little bit of a theory, but one thing I've really been thinking about a lot is Harry is, of course, brilliant. He's you know, predicting the future in his own way through his, you know, just a mastery of math. And he gives the prime radiant to Gale to hide. Yeah. Which suggests to me, at least, that he even here is a step ahead. Yeah. Because why give it to Gale? They can read anybody's mind, right? He must know that she is resistant to their ability to read minds somehow. And so... It's hard for me to escape the feeling that even in death, maybe, Harry's a step ahead somehow again, because how how can they not be finding the Prime Radiant? Yeah, I mean, I think Harry was the first one to really be suspicious of Ignis, right? He was the first mm-hmm. one that was suspicious of Hugo. And he is kind of 12 steps ahead of everyone. And so I think he thinks, well, if anyone can resist this insidious force, uh, the three of us, it's Gale. So he doesn't know for certain she can, but I think he thinks if any one of us can, it's her. Um, I, I loved uh, just the, the moments of Harry getting used to his new body. It really made him... A person. <laughs> I mean, really hammering home the, the metaphor of him, you know, just being back in a body again. You, you really could feel it with that yeah. performance. Yeah. My toes are in fine, cool water for the first time in almost two centuries. Right. The brand new toes you don't quite remember getting. That's why you've joined me. A little light inquisition. Well, you were immortal, more or less. Yeah, it was lo- it was lovely getting Jared there just on the ocean with a fishing pole and barefoot. And, and it's also, I love that. That's actually one of my favorite scenes of the whole season because the scenes between Harry and Salver are just fun. Yeah. And you also don't expect that they clearly like each other and and didn't expect to like each other. Yeah. And it's fun because we don't often have moments like that in the show where two people can just kind of hang out and chat and play around with each other. And 
Yes, we learned some really interesting things, particularly about the prime radiant, but it was really fun to just kind of luxuriate in those two characters enjoying each other's presence. Um, Hober goes to see the spacers. That's where we find out he's been tasked with, with liaising with. Who are you? Why have you defiled the home swarm? What makes him the right person to, to be the, you know, the diplomat between the Foundation and the Spacers? Obviously, we can't tell you that okay. yet. But okay. I will say this. What were the circumstances in which we first met him? What was he doing? Uh, well, he was uh, running a con. Running a con. Running a con. Okay. So that's what he's good at. Running okay. a con. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, Rory, how'd you go about creating the look and feel of the spacers? It's so striking. Yeah, their ship and, well, obviously we, we've seen the spacers from season yes. one. right. So that development was sort of, we had that. But then what are their ships? Basically, they live in space their entire lives. And it was one ship, I guess, sort of go away from the norm of a spaceship. I wanted something a little bit different. And a lot of it's like, in zero gravity. Yeah, what is their tech? Like, how do they mm. actually uh, manufacture these ships if they're just in space? You know, I just get on the internet and start looking for weird organic matter that can be grown. And one thing I was looking at was mycelium and how you can like, you can grow a house from mushrooms. Yeah. You can grow anything and it's incredibly strong and it can take any form or any shape. So I was thinking that their ships can almost like take any form. They almost plant them and, and create a ship. And I, that ship I kind of nicknamed the pregnant waffle. Um, <laughs> where it's sort of just like, you know, the center, they created this sort of large center at that point. So they, cause they all fly around and zero G. Because there is no up or down. Right, right. Your idea was that yeah. that mothership can break apart into individual components and, and then assemble into that. And that was the original plan. And we had a bunch more VFX shots planned that did that. And I fought to keep that till the bitter end. And then we had to let that go. Yeah, like when, when Hoberg shows up, I wanted these like little, these little swarm ships to almost sort of envelop his ship and almost like grab hold and then like morph and grow onto the mothership yeah. and create create like a space dock and create its own atmosphere yeah yeah it's i may a, have had a few mushrooms when i was <laughs> when I, this, <laughs> I didn't want to say there were any psychotropics involved um let's go to trantor where i i, I was really i love this exchange between polly and constant where polly is saying well, actually, your faith is so much more impressive than mine because I met I met the prophet. I was there. I saw yeah. him. You only have your belief. That's the difference between belief and faith. I believe what I saw, but faith is a bigger commitment. And you always had faith constant. And it puts my belief to shame. This really, it really deepened the way I saw these characters and the relationship. Yeah, that was a beautiful moment. And that was a moment that it's like, I had the notion for that. I described this kind of central thesis of what Polly was saying to Jane and said, but you just, but you make it, because <laughs> she's so good with words. She's just, just a, a consummate wordsmith. I just, I just said, here's my idea. Here's the bad version of it. Can you just make it beautiful? And she did. And it was beautiful. 
the scene at the dedication of the statue of... That location was a pain oh. in the butt. <laughs> I kept on getting turned down around the world. But I needed something that just scale. And it, yeah. you were sort of mm. saying that this is sort of the, you know, maybe the older area of Trantor where the, you know, where the old ring was. Yeah. Um, so I found this great location down in Ostrava. And then obviously I concepted out the entire space and modeled out the whole that they're on this sort of pedestal up in you know in, in the sort of the the air of Trantor. We don't have I mean when you do scenes with a lot of extras it's unsurprisingly very expensive. Mm. Um there was another scene like that in episode two of season one when they are hanging the delegates mm -hmm. from Thespis and Anacreon and they're really expensive to do but we feel like at least a couple times a season we have to show the scope of empire and the scale of Trantor, yeah. it's it, you know we've used a few different countries and a few different cities, and you know we originally used Berlin, and I wanted this sort of contrast of different architecture next to each other, so to sort of show the the history of the planet, how they've built and built and different buildings on different buildings on different buildings. But it is a challenge. Sci-fi downtown city, one of the most challenging um, sets to pull off to make it feel like you're in this massive, massive city. I love this scene for a number of reasons. First of all, the, the kind of high-handedness of Day, who on the one hand is saying, here is this, the, you know, the first empress, this woman that was kind of a, ignored by history, and I will be the one to bring her back to everyone's attention. And while I'm doing that, also, genetic dynasty, it's over. You see, Winneset will not be the last empress on Trantor. Bow before your new empress, Sereth I. Uh, and then he hands the mic to his bride-to-be, Queen Sereth. And I think the audience, to this point, is, understands that there's much more to Sereth than, than Empire understands. But when she makes her appeal directly to the people here, and it is extremely popular and well-received, I think that's the first moment that Day gets an inkling of the person he's dealing with, which is really, really fascinating. It is, and it, but it also shows you, like, he's such a dick about his photo <laughs> op, right? He's like... Yeah. I, I'm going to restore the statue of the last great empress. And then right. I'm going to introduce you to the next great yeah. empress. But yeah. I'm going to get really annoyed if she tries to take any of the spotlight away from me. So it's all about the photo op for him. It, it also feels like a huge, obviously, Sarah has been taking big risk. But it fe this feels like a big risk, but maybe one that she had to take to get some leverage with Empire. Totally. And that's one of the reasons... I mean, the two main reasons that he picked her were, one, she's popular, people like her. And then initially, because she's young and he thought he could manipulate her. And now I think he's starting to realize, oof, she's not as naive as I thought. And she's even more popular than I thought. Yeah. So I think he's, <laughs> he's, he's kind of second guessing, you know, was this a good idea at this point? Is Sarah sincere in her appeal to the people, to this kind of quasi-democracy, or is this just a cynical, going to make Empire's life as, as complex as possible? I don't, I don't think we are ready to declare where Sarah is at this point in the show. Okay. She says a lot of the right things, but we'll see. 
Uh, and I would have to imagine there's a lot of things that might escape day's notice, but being shown up is not going to be one of them. No, no. You don't want to embarrass someone like that. Um, the Harry flashbacks add so much important context to just who this guy is, his emotional arc, what the Prime Radian means to him. And these scenes have a very distinct look. Tell us about creating this, the, the, the look and feel of this past of Harry's. That was all Rory. The world of Helicon, his yeah. past, yeah. yeah. There's this spectacularly large mountain on one of the Canary Islands in Tenerife called Mount Tide. Tallest where, mountain in Spain. And so it's funny because the island's like relatively flat and then there's just, just giant hawking. Volcano. Extinct volcano, yeah. And sometimes it snows up there, although very rarely. And that's where Rory and his team built Harry's childhood home. And that was the the valley was where the herd of moon shrikes are. We like the idea that Harry's this brainy guy and yet effectively grew up, you know, his parents were ranchers, cattle ranchers and real salt of the earth kind of people. Mount Titi was just the perfect place to have, you know, Helicon, this sort of small country homestead house where they're sort of looking out over the valley and the herds that sort of travel up and down. And it was, so I put that in motion. I would say we worked on that location probably for at least 11 months. Yeah. To, you know, to go through all these hurdles. Isn't it a national park? It's a national park. All of the hurdles to sort of be able to build a small set up there. And then it started snowing. (laughs) Um, You know, the the morning before, the morning we were supposed to shoot. So it was a challenge, but, you know, snow went away. We got into the valley. It looks beautiful. And it looks just incredible. And, and then I like, had the, I mean, talk about mushrooms. I had this idea of like, what if, because we have this scientific advisor, uh, Kevin Hand, and I said, what if Helicon has a moon that's super close to the planet? Yeah. Oh, I love this. I really love this. You know, at certain cycles, they share the same atmosphere. And then these these mega strikes to migrate actually fly from Helicon up through the shared atmosphere when these two things are conjoined like to the moon in order to finish their life cycle. And I was like, is there any way that's scientifically possible? And Kevin was like, what? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it would look cool. Like, where did you come up with it? And and I was like, come on, can't you make it work? Because we try to make it work. He was like, well, I guess if the gravitational field of this and that and the mass of that, and because... They're near the event horizon of a black hole. Like he actually works these things out. And then in concept art, we make it work. Uh It's quite interesting. I think that uh, in a episode in which, you know, a forgotten empress is brought back to the uh, public's attention. We also discover that actually Harry had significant help creating the prime radian. Yeah. And he never mentions that. Interesting. How much of that is, Harry's, you know, uh, legacy kind of polishing and how much of that is, well, that's as important for the mission and how much of that is ego. I think the thing about Yana is, well, A, we wanted to show that the Harry on Helicon was a softer, more playful, more loving person, right? But she was his counterpart. She brought those aspects out of him. And then when she dies and when she's killed by Empire, you know, that part of him dies as well. And I think- Or that part of him goes into hibernation. And so I think that's why he's scared to love again. He's scared to open his heart again. I think that's part of why he keeps himself at arm's reach from Gale. But if Yana were alive, I don't think he would be shy about giving her credit. I think the main reason is it's actually just too painful for him. Yeah. 
I see. He just doesn't he just doesn't want to go back there because it just hurts too much. So the myths about Helicon are true. The silver moonlight turns even the most cynical inhabitants into romantics. So the legend goes. Well, tomorrow, if you feel the same way in the sunlight, maybe we can plan an actual date. Maybe. You know, theoretically, if you concur. I love to concur. The scene in which he dispatches Giannis Killer, this university administrator had been working on behalf of the empire to try and obtain the prime reading by any means necessary, is it gave me chills because on the one hand, it's, you know, Harry calling back to one of his first breakthroughs as a child, right? Predicting the, the movement of all of these variables, this massive herd. And on the other hand, it is a bone-chilling power play. It's like he's saying, and he could just shoot her, you know, but like in these final yeah. moments, he's saying, you think you're smart? You think you guys are powerful? Look how smart I am. This is the person you're dealing with. He reprograms her car to take them to a different destination. He reprograms the trigger lock on her gun yeah. ahead of time. And he takes her to the place where he knows this herd is going to show up. And he knows the exact spot where he can stand where he won't be killed, where she is. It is as premeditated a murder as you can get. Make your case. Argue for your life. Come on. You better hurry. The sheepdogs are bringing them this way. I had no reason to want her dead. I just wanted the prototype. She resisted. She provoked. Tied to a chair! I couldn't have foreseen what happened! with that, are you? You're not responsible because you couldn't have foreseen what was going to happen. You know, it's funny because that question comes up a lot in my life. And that's the other thing that I tasked the writers with. I said, I want to tell this backstory where you, your just heart breaks for him, but he commits a murder. Yeah. <laughs> like it is. And I think most of the audience would say it's justified. But it is a premeditated murder. And then the other interesting question is, because Jan is the one that advocating going for Empire. Right. Not because she's a fan of Empire, but because she says, like, they're going to come for this thing, the Prime Radiant, no matter what. Regardless. So you're better off being in the belly of the beast. And that's a way to twist the knife. And so he doesn't want to go. And and so you realize after the fact that Harry coming to Tranter was kind of in honor of Jan. And then, so you're left to wonder, even though he presents himself as this completely detached, you know, he he's just doing what the math says, right? <laughs> right and it, right, he's right, right. not putting any motivation into this, but then you, I think you're left to wonder at the end of this episode, but is a little bit of it also revenge? Probably. And I think that's what makes him human. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's something I think about all the time is how much of our political ideology is the result of, well, I've looked at uh, the data, I've looked at the information, I've experienced the world, and this is what I think, and how much of it is I have an instinctive feel for how things should be, my grievances, the things I love, the things I hate. I'm going to back map my political structure yeah. to, to fit around that. I, like, I would argue it's like really like 70% of it is like, <laughs> you know, whatever trauma or, or whatever experiences we had our child. Yeah, like you say, you, you back matter, you you reverse engineer it to make it so. You know, we see two very complex and multi-layered murder schemes in this episode. I control what Gail and Salvor know. They'll be told about our philosophy of death, how we only kill when we need to. 
for nourishment, for self-defense. You're gonna drown me first, right? Well, yes. Why kill him this way? Well, A, like that's their ritual for killing unsighted, right? But B, I, I also think Telem is just really sadistic. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just do. Because she could she could have killed him in more easy ways. Very slow. Yeah. Methodical. She enjoys yeah, yeah. The, the emotions yeah. that yeah. Ins- happen when someone's afraid. She doesn't like Harry because Harry represents the threat to her. And even yeah. though he's not sighted, he threatens her. And so she wants to prove that she has mastery over him and that she can make him suffer. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about with this, this, the culture of these mentalics is, on the one hand, there'd be this feeling of unity because all of your thoughts are open to everyone else, right? You're mm-hmm. an open book, you're walking around as vulnerable as you can be. So there's this, I, I would imagine, this immense sense of community and trust, but there must also be this nagging fear of, are, are, am I thinking my thoughts? Am I thinking right. someone else's? Right. Someone else or am controlling I the me? wrong thing, and then yeah. how do you keep it? How do you keep a secret in a colony of telepaths? You know, you, you talked about Anchor Watt, Rory. Um, how did you arrive at that at that kind of that kind of feeling? And I wonder if if the culture of the mentalics informed the look and feel and any of your work. I think they kind of want to keep a low profile. Yeah, yeah. Like they don't want to be. You know, they've they've been. They've showed up on this planet that the empire sort of forgotten. Yes. And so that's like a perfect hiding place for them. And they're sort of living in these ruins. You know, they may have added a few things to the planet. They've, you know, they built some boats. They have sort of limited technology. Yeah. And we had this amazing location in Lanzarote that on this beach. That with, co- with the cove thing. The magic, like right, right. The sun is like, the ball is like right on the horizon. And it's just, it's got to be one of the, the prettiest sort of shots in the show. I also, yeah, I love how the episode opens with Harry at the beach, kind of at dusk, and you just see that, you know, the horizon and this like little flash of lightning, and he's thinking, and that uh, it's it's a big premonition of what's going on in his interior mind, and there's a lot roiling around in there. And so, yeah, another way to look at the episode is just sort of like as this metaphor for Harry's mind. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> watching this episode, I have to ask. How long was Jared up to his neck in water for? <laughs> um, a couple of days. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was a good sport. He goes, he's a giver. And, he and, gets and, in there. But like those wave pools and stuff like that, it was it was like splashing on him. And when he's coughing and, and sputtering, it's, it was real. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, this, this location was fantastic. I actually found it on a uh, holiday uh, weekend with my family. And I was like, this is Ignis. This is like just the scale of the columns on the shore and the waves. I'm like, this is where we need to kill the Harry. And <laughs> I showed David this location. He was like, this is amazing. This is perfect. And uh, we spent the week there with beautiful weather, building this set in the pool. Um, then we had the highest swell in the Atlantic of the season and the whole set was underwater. Oh my and, gosh. And washed away. And they're there with the camera ready to, yeah. you know, everybody's just sort of, okay, back it up. So then we shot like some some uh, VFX plates, some murals, and a, and a handful of shots. And it like literally the ocean just washed the whole set away. We're like, what are we going to do? Don't know. We're going to have to figure it out later. So <laughs> eventually then the production moved to Prague 
and uh, tell them what we did. Yeah, I, we had some great sort of establishers there. Yeah. To set up the locations and wides. And then we built that pool in a parking lot. Literally a parking lot yeah. in Prague. Oh, wow. And then in CG, put, you know, put the sky in and put the rocks in around it. Wave machines. Wave big, machines yeah. in a parking lot in Prague. Yeah. And uh, it was crazy. And and I would argue wow. there was definitely shots that you can't, people would have no idea. Like, oh, yeah, that was shot in a parking lot. I and could we, not. I could we composited not we, that into stuff in the Canaries. Whenever I see water in your scripts, I just like, I just start pulling my hair out. I'm just like, how are we going to do this? <laughs> because you have people standing on water, underwater, spaceships in water. And it's always a pain, but it always looks cool. Let's we'll put the whole set underwater. I'm like, okay, it's, I'm, then I'm like thinking, okay, is the paint going to dry? Is the water going to stay clear? Is the paint going to leach off? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. You obviously are not going to tell me anything about this, but Harry dead. Wow. I mean, I'll just say that I, my mind flashed back to something, a conversation you had uh, in season one when we were recording this, and you were discussing how you like to say, okay, here's, here's a corner we could paint ourselves into. How do yeah. we get out? Yeah. This, because one, I didn't see this moment coming, and two, I don't know how you get out. That one was really hard, and, and I can't reveal whether or not we got out of it. Of course you can <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time for another round of Building the Foundation, our light speed round of questions about the world of foundation. Show you what. You'll be allowed to build your foundation. I suppose you want. Why do you put her in the park? You want to be in control? You know nothing. Okay, question one. If Harry doesn't catch any fish, how good is he at predicting stuff? He predicted the herd of of shrikes, and yet uh, we don't see him uh, pulling any fish here. Actually, there's a story behind that. Uh, <laughs> we had a whole thing where there were seabirds. This is written in the script oh, that were flying oh, overhead. Remember, that remember seabird thing. And there's a whole scene in which Salver talks about that. She's catching a fish and he isn't. <laughs> and he's predicted the patterns of the seabird. And what he does is he, in the scene, he flicks his uh, his line up in the air, and he catches a fish out of the bird's mouth. Oh, wow. Because he's following the murmurations of the birds. And it's easier to do that than to wait around because he can't see the fish in the water, but he can see the birds overhead. So it was a really cool scene and we just had to cut it for budget. But then we thought it was duplicative of the Moonstrike pattern. So so there's a really snarky answer to your question. (laughs) Uh, Can a non-psychic person unvoice? No. Okay. Um, does the, uh, the, the young man, Talek Josiah, does he understand that he's a little creepy? <laughs> he never blinks. Yeah. Well, A, we tried to edit most of his blinks out. So intentionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, we also talked about with the Mentalics, like a little bit of a Jonestown vibe. Yeah. As well. Oh, it's there. So that kid's a fantastic actor, but yes, we, we did cast him for, maximum creepiness as well what's an imperial passport like well it's virtual right yeah it just like part of comes you. up yeah it's yeah. it's it's you've got a chip or something yeah, everybody's documented you. everybody yeah. yeah you've got a little pet id chip somewhere in you uh what's the max on the profits black card <laughs> well they were staying at the the trantor hilton yes but another <laughs> scene that was cut remember there was that whole restaurant scene Yes. We oh, had, where they go out. Yeah. 
There was a we whole, did a lot of good scouting. There for that was place. a whole scene where they actually go to a restaurant, and originally it's one of these restaurants where it's almost completely dark, and like the waiters like sort of come out in the darkness and serve you, and they had all these crazy dishes. They were like floating bubbles over their table with yeah, like we're gonna fish have these orbs that sort of drop down from the ceiling and just sort of float into the, fit, the table. And it was going to be this really decadent, fun, futuristic, like wine pairing dinner scene where, you know, Polly's getting progressively more and more drunk and more and more drunk. And Polly is flirting with, with the waitress. And the waitress is the one who turns out to be like the head of intelligence, you know, at the end that ends up arresting him. And it was an amazing scene. But it's that was also one of the budget battles that I lost. Yeah, well, that's unfortunate. Uh, if body Harry, Harry now with a body, can listen in on the vault, does that mean that he is in some way inside of the vault? Mm, maybe. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Rory. It's great to have you. Great to have your perspective. Thank you very much. And of course, David. A pleasure as always. We'll be back next week covering episode seven. Thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Ben Goldberg. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Darby Maloney is our editor. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Music by Carly Bond with additional music provided by Apple. And I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks for listening. You've got a very special mind. I'd like to walk around in it. <laughs>